We hear so much about disinformation, but do we even know what disinformation is? And what's the connection between disinformation and data? It has a profound impact on our society, our elections, this concept of fake news. That's our topic on CXO Talk today. And we have two experts on the show to talk about it. Brett Horvath, who is the founder of Guardians.ai. Hey, Brett, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Michael. So, Brett, tell us about Guardians.ai and tell us about your work. Guardians.ai's mission is to protect pro-democracy groups around the world dealing with information warfare and what we call engineered volatility. Uh, what we mean by engineered volatility is efforts to interfere in open markets, elections, um, culture and media. And uh, we've been doing this quietly for about three years uh, and really run into all sorts of interesting uh, use cases um, around um, the public sector, the private sector, and uh, it's been an interesting ride. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to learn more. And our second guest and my guest host and a subject matter expert on this topic is David Bray. David, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here and actually be joining with Brett to have great conversations about what we can do to address the polarizing social wedges being produced through a combination of disinformation and taking information out of context. All right. So to begin, Brett, let me ask you to kick it off. When we talk about disinformation, what exactly do we mean? I think disinformation is a great starting point. Fake news isn't really uh, the right lens to look at it because Disinformation can start with something that wasn't intentionally false, but turns into something that confuses lots of people. When things are taken out of context, that is the polarizing social wedge that we face and the challenges that we face in addressing this. And what Guardians AI has been doing is they've been tracking the data behind this as a way for the data the sin tells in terms of what they're looking for and what they're trying to address. Can you give us, when, when we talk about disinformation, David, what are, give us some examples. Sure. So in, in, in Europe, we've seen like the yellow vest phenomenon as an example where that, that, that was something that, that, that may have been initially produced virally, but really what made it sort of go accelerate was when a combination of automated accounts and intentional actors tried to inflame both sides of the yellow vest phenomenon debate. They took pictures out of context, text out of context, and tried to wipe it. Brett, do you have additional thoughts about examples of where disinformation or taking information on a context has been weaponized? Yeah, I think there are some key themes that come up. And uh, with disinformation, all things that are uh, uh, old are new again. And efforts to really focus on racially divisive narratives and spreading division amongst uh, different groups of people online. Um, we saw that a lot in 2015, 2016. It's not just an American phenomenon. It happens all over uh, um, Europe uh, in re relation to elections. But we're seeing that happen a lot right now in the US. We saw groups of accounts on Twitter that were foreign-based uh, and coordinated um, uh, pushing racially divisive narratives that started to increase in activity starting in uh, February and March. Um, but they're really starting to light up right now in a big way. And so we're trying to keep our eye on them and see how far will they go, um, what uh, groups are they targeting? Um, but racially divisive narratives, I think, is one of the most important places to keep your eye on. And it's not just about uh, politics. We're seeing these groups of accounts go after banks and tech companies. Um, so it's, it's interesting. 
so Brett, a question. It used to be back in 2012 or so that you know you could you could fairly tell whether it was a bot or not simply because the bot never slept, whereas humans had to sleep. But but as soon as that became sort of publicly known as a tell to detect bots, 2013, then they started actually doing sort of having the actual programming to have the automated account that's spreading tons of information to actually sleep for eight hours and then come back on. So could you talk a little bit about the data behind how do you detect if this looks like this is something that's being intentionally done as disinformation or intentionally as a polarizing social wedge? That's a great question. And you know, there's a lot of like bot detector stories and studies um, that are trying to map very simple things like uh, our accounts retweeting each other or uh, is it very you know, obvious linguistic uh, ticks. But that's just not sufficient anymore. Um, uh, bad actors have evolved their tactics significantly and um, not only emulate humans, but hide amongst real human users and get them engaged in their own patterns of coordination. So from our standpoint, you can't rely on automated solutions alone. Uh, we call it the fallacy of the one big net. Everyone wants to have one big net of data and then rely on magical uh, automated anomaly detection. The problem is, is that those are really narrow algorithms um, designed with a very narrow intent. And over time, they have what we call analytical debt. Um, it's like buying a new car. It's, uh, it uh, loses value as soon as you drive it off a lot. So <laughs> combining human level analysis and ethnography um, with uh, machine systems and automated detection, and then building learning loops between them, from our standpoint, is the only really way to solve it. Um, definitely be skeptical of anyone promising one tech, uh, one automated solution, because they're probably not going to be able to keep up with the pace of innovation of uh, Russia or China's entire information warfare um, uh, infrastructure. But what about the issue of scalability? If we are, if, if we have to use human mechanisms in addition to algorithmic detection, then how is combating this even possible? Well, this really gets at the challenges and the limitations of top-down command and control approaches uh, to managing information warfare, either uh, identification, analysis, or response. Um, you can have the most well-funded, well-run top-down organization, but you're going to be overwhelmed with you know, what is really non-linear information warfare that are tactics that people haven't seen before. So that, that combination of human level analysis and, um, and machine systems, um, we call those augmented intelligence workflows. And the whole idea is they're tech agnostic, or they can be, and they're extensible where you can partner with um, peers in your industry or a volunteer association um, or an NGO. Um, and we found that when it's the really nasty stuff, it's pretty rare that one organization can fight it alone. And so these augmented intelligence workflows allow you to rapidly spin up new ways of identification uh, and analysis um, with partners, either in a one-off basis or in a sustained uh, manner. But uh, it's, it's really uh, trying to get serious about that whole collaboration thing and getting outside of the top-down uh, hierarchy, because no matter how big and cool and well-funded your organization is, uh, you're probably not going to be able to uh, stay up with the rate of innovation. David, maybe I, I think maybe you can share some insight into the approaches. Sure. That... With the people-centered internet uh, that I work with as executive director, we're working with Guardians AI and other groups that are trying to do counter disinformation, counter misinformation. And, and the techniques really are, as Brett mentioned, there's no one single way to detect this. Um, if, if people claim that, or if they say it can simply be done by one simple solution, 
it, it really is that that's not that's not the reality, and that actually hasn't been the reality probably since 2013, 2014. Uh, as Brett mentioned, uh, they're getting much more advanced in terms of how they adapt and shift. Uh, I know that he's had cases where he identifies something as appearing to be automated, and then when someone goes to follow up, be it a journalist or someone else, on those accounts, all of a sudden the accounts shift and they actually have real people behind those accounts for that time period, and then they switch back to some automated fashion. And so it really is almost like being a, a, a detective of a sort, which is you're looking for different tells, you're using the data to try and drive that, and it's moving things up or down the probability curve that this is not a natural human phenomenon, whether it's in terms of just the sheer volume uh, or it's in terms of patterns where certain accounts are only doing other accounts, but it's actually gotta be a multifactorial approach to look at this because it can't be done by one single bullet alone. And the reason why the people-centered internet cares about this is we care about this because if we really want the internet to be a source of hope for people, much like how it was in the mid 90s, where it was intended to actually uplift lives, help reach greater understanding, greater truth, but now we see it dividing ourselves. Really the reason why we find partnering with Guardians AI and other groups so valuable is this is the needed almost public health, almost epidemiology-like approach, which is recognizing that this is all of us, including the public, and what we, tweet, what we choose to post that contribute to this phenomenon. And Brett, uh, we're actually wondering, could you actually tell a little bit more about what you and your team at Guardians AI did when you were examining the, the attempt to, to claim that there may or may not have been election interference with the midterms in 2018? Could you talk about how did you actually sort of proceed in that investigation? So we were looking for things that other people were not uh, spotting. Um, uh, there were a lot of new kind of bot detector systems and, and research. And what we found just by poking around, looking for strange anomalies is a group of accounts that were coordinating around voter fraud narratives for over three years. Um, and they were co-spiking at, uh, at bizarrely similar intervals. It looked like a kind of a um, EKG machine for three years. But then right around um, uh, late summer, we realized that they started surging um, uh, they went from zero mentions in one day to all of a sudden getting 10,000 mentions. And no one was detecting this because everyone's, uh, pretty much everyone's um, sensor networks were built around uh, monitoring retweets and, uh, you know, we're bots retweeting each other. But this slight shift in tactics from retweet to, for amplification to mentions uh, meant that almost everyone missed what was, ended up being one of the largest influence attacks in, uh, uh, on the 2018 midterms. Um, and so how we were able to identify these things that, you know, weren't picked up by bot detectors, were coordinating in this different way, um, we had to spin up this augmented intelligence workflow with our company, um, a group of volunteer researchers, and then the San Diego Supercomputing Center and two academic uh, institutions, and figure out what was going on, uh, uh, spin up different analytical loops, and then do it faster and faster. And that was the only way we were able to find that. Um, I don't think any one organization could have identified uh, uh, this influence attack. And so um, that collaborative approach um, isn't just good for uh, uh, for the whole of society and democracy. Everyone who is involved learned a lot that was valuable from a from a business standpoint, from an uh, innovation and technique standpoint. Um, but that was a pretty scary thing because towards the end, those accounts were the biggest source pushing the caravan crisis and they were fusing this distrust of democracy with uh, these racially charged narratives, um, claiming that essentially millions of people coming in from the caravan crisis were gonna vote illegally in close Senate races. Um, and that fusion of distrust in democracy and racially charged narratives 
Um, that's a common theme. We saw it in 2016, saw it in 2018, and now we're seeing it again uh, uh, this year. So the issue then is one of collaboration in terms of solution. The issue is one of uh, detection first and then collaboration. But that raises the question of when you say collaboration, who? Who needs to collaborate and who's going to help them? How are they going to get that organized? So collaboration, it really is thinking about, as Brett showed, you know, thinking about what was, what was doing as a polarizing social wedge with election interference in 2018, that no one organization would spot it. It really is recognizing that you have to collaborate, not just within your company, but also with academia, as he mentioned, that there are, there are approaches to this, um, and also with other research institutions, and recognizing that there's a sort of a balance between involving the private sector and the public sector. Uh, a lot of these, these, these polarizing social wedge efforts that are being done, whoever is actually doing it, are trying to actually inflame divides across different groups. And, and really, they're trying to paralyze us because we're so divided or we're seeing each other that we can't actually work together, we can't trust each other, that that is to them a win. And, and so oftentimes, it really is about coming forward and saying, look, uh, we're trying to do the best we can in whatever situation this is. As he mentioned, uh, initially, people hadn't even spotted these things that had been going on for three years. And it was only when Guardians AI looked at enough of the data to see that there were these very abnormal spikes that seemed to be happening at very odd coincidental times. It wasn't necessarily a telltale signature or a fingerprint or something forensic. It was just simply looking at the spikes and the signatures. And so that one to me suggests that you need a many eyes approach that is looking for the non-obvious, not just the obvious, because if it's obvious, it may very well be whoever is doing the social wedge wants you to cue in on the obvious and be distracted by that. Instead, they want you to look for the, what are the, the non-obvious social wedges that are, that are these spikes or coinciding time sequences and then actually from there begin to have a greater conversation about well what else are we seeing what else could this be what else is going on here and it's just recognizing that a lot of these begin with identifying something that's non-obvious involving enough of the partners and then drilling down into the data so she can go further in and i think that's what makes guardian ai so 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 important is it really is a team effort and what brett is doing is really collaborative across different groups so brett tell us about that collaboration one of the things I was uh, was getting to is that um, inside of an organization, um, it's looking at this not just as a communications problem or a cybersecurity problem. Uh, the first act you can do that uh, can be transformative is building the bridges between risk, uh, cybersecurity, and communications. Um, so that you get a similar taxonomy of what are the, uh, the things we're seeing. One of the first problems is some smart person in one of those divisions seeing something weird, and they don't know what to call it what to name it, and who to send the this is weird email to. Um, establishing that shared taxonomy and then how you get that up to executive decision making is really important. Um, if your organization is treating um, information anomalies and influence attacks as something kind of mid-level management and not rising to the top level, you, you're probably going to be missing some significant uh, uh, business risks uh, or opportunities because these things are not isolated to one part of the, the business operation. It's not just social media. You know, what happens on social media doesn't stay there. Uh, sometimes these social media influence attacks are designed to actually lead to phishing attacks to get um, into uh, CTOs or CEOs' um, uh, accounts. And so if you don't have those lines of communication between um, uh, risk and, uh, and the comms team, you're going to be missing out. We have a question from Twitter. Sal Rasa is asking about the application uh, to healthcare. 
and the pr protecting healthcare data and sharing of data between physicians, clinicians, and patients. Any thoughts on, on that intersection? I think there's a lot of specific uh, near-term things, but one item I'll say is that I think it's important to understand that uh, as people get uh, really engaged and you know, some might argue addicted to certain um, uh, social media applications or Facebook groups that are designed to be uh, targeting their um, their amygdala, their their sense of fear, like um, you know anti-vaxxer movements. Um, that starts to have a physiological effect, um, and it's uh, you think about you know a Russian active measure targeting a group of people, uh, getting them to change their digital behavior to think about uh, you know not vaccinating their kids. They don't vaccinate their kids, and then there's measurable real-world health outcomes. Um, thinking about uh, that risk on a unified biological and information continuum, I think, is a starting point to both analyzing near-term risks and then also thinking about what are the health effects. I think we need to really move this beyond politics and not discuss, you know, are these accounts targeting left uh, or right-leaning people, therefore, is it good or bad? Um, this is something, information warfare, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, um, it's a public health crisis that affects all of us. And if we can start to measure these things uh, scientifically from a health standpoint, I think that the, uh, um, the health tech community and the public health sector could have a lot of important um, uh, business innovation and public good uh, that they could do in this space. And, and I just want to emphasize what Brett just said. That's a very tangible example of how uh, using people's anger and fear on social media, which is designed to have you come back and use it. We, you know, unfortunately, the platforms have designed themselves to be habit forming. In the case of the anti-vaccine movement, have mobilized people that 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 are now taking rather extreme views. And, and are now resulting in actually measles showing up in the United States. And so this is a case where the, 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 the realm of disinformation has now actually had physical effects on a nation. And, 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 it, and, it's, and it's an interesting example of the reality, if you, if it, as the physiology changes in terms of as you get exposed to this, this, this disinformation, what happens is more facts will not change your views or you lose that relating to that other person on the other end as being a fellow human being. And that's true as well for those that are trying to deal with trying to bridge these groups together is you have to embody what President Lincoln said, which is, I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. If what happens as a result of these different activities with disinformation is we lose empathy, that will affect both our mental health and our physiology of our health. It's also recognizing that the way you tackle this is really hard because Again, more and more research shows just providing facts will not change people's opinions. If anything, it'll make them dig down further and look for their extreme views to be confirmed, confirmation bias. Saying X is not true, nobody remembers the not, they just remember the X further. And so this is very much like a new field of public health, whether it's called cognitive public health or what, we need to figure out, especially for open societies, how can the social media platforms, the news platforms, the corporations, the public sector, the private sector, NGOs, all work together for this? Because if we don't, we may find ourselves becoming more autocracies of thought that will then eventually lead to more autocracies of societies as a whole. Brett, let me change gears slightly here. When we talk about disinformation or you, you use the term information warfare. 
obviously there's a data, a strong data component to all of this. So is it really a matter of data scientists fighting data scientists? Is that what we're the situation we're in today? You know, I, I think uh, data science is an important part of it, but I think it's uh, really about who can spin up the best learning teams. Uh, and usually the ones that uh, win and evolve are interdisciplinary learning teams that are organized from a culture and operation standpoint to optimize for learning. That's the, the part about machine learning people often forget is the learning thing. And humans who are learning are the ones that encode their learning instincts into those systems. So whether it's AI or augmented intelligence that combines human and machine learning, um, I think this is a, if you wanna win, um, what could be arguably called a war of cognition, how you structure cultures of learning or accelerating learning cultures, and embed those in effective technical systems, um, and then build learning, virtuous burning loops between them. Um, those, are the, those are the groups that win. And right now, uh, authoritarians have an advantage in this space because of how they're concentrating data. Um, in the case of you know, China or Russia, they have coordination between their public sector, their militaries, and their companies. But this is where open societies, I think, can re-exert their advantage, is uh, diversity of thought, uh, open ideas, innovation. That is where you know it's not just relying on command and control. We have to lean into our advantages and make the most of them. Um, and open, diverse, interdisciplinary cultures and societies can learn better, faster, deeper if we do it right and do it intentionally. Brett, have these groups ever come after you? Have you ever actually experienced it yourself where they've actually directed a disinformation attack because maybe you uncovered or exposed something they didn't want to have exposed? Have they come after with you and tried to do the same thing? Oh yeah, it's it's been a it's been a fun that's been a fun part of the journey. And um, you know, when we expose these group of accounts promoting uh, these voter fraud and racially charged narratives in 2018, we thought they, there'd be some blowback when because it was a national story when we exposed it. Um, but nothing happened, even though we had taken over the hashtags they were coordinating for uh, on a couple of years. But then Politico came to us in uh, February and said, could you see any activity going on in the 2020 uh, presidential race? And we saw these same group of accounts were driving the vast majority of the conversation on Twitter. Um, and they were foreign accounts, most of them. Uh, and so we exposed it. It went around like crazy. Uh, I went on TV, the reporter went on TV. And then all of a sudden, um, for two weeks, uh, we had 50,000 to 200,000 accounts coming at, at us. They were accusing me of being at the center of a transatlantic conspiracy. They strung together you know, my college volunteering for a microfinance org with some guy I know who was a Silicon Valley investor. Um, and then Q of QAnon, who is um, this figure that is very influential in the conspiratorial web, posted on uh, 8chan saying that I and Guardians.ai were, uh, uh, were fascists trying to silence the voice of patriotic Americans. So um, Q's whole army came at us and uh, we got you know, lawsuit threats and death threats on our phone and the reporter did. And um, we had uh, our data partners getting attacked by, by hackers. So that was pretty. Um, uh, that was pretty scary for a little bit. I do want to emphasize that 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 what Brett is sharing is not an isolated case. That this is something that there are different teams within the United States, within Europe, North America. We're also seeing some show up uh, Australia, other parts of Southeast Asia. 
that this is something that needs to be a rallying call for those individuals who are willing to commit to the combination of data science plus almost like gumshoe detective work and ultimately empathy. I mean, you've heard Brett talk about cognition, public health. I come from a background that included bioterrorism, preparedness and response. And at the time we were dealing with invisible biological agents. How do you know if the information you're getting is the whole set of what really has occurred, the whole set of the facts, or is it being taken out of context? And the challenge is with the internet, we've removed geography. So now anybody and everybody can deliver you information that may that may make you feel good or may play to your belief system and likes, but you don't know if it's being taken out of context or if it's meant to polarize you even further and make you part of this challenge. And so this is something that I think, much like how we had to grapple with how the world was changing as we became more connected, people started traveling overseas, you had to deal with public health and infectious diseases that were now spreading from different parts of the world because of the connectivity, and it's not that we said we didn't want to be connected. Now that we are connected both physically, but also through the internet, it's requiring public sector and private sector organizations to find new ways of working together if we're still going to stay open in this society. And so when Brett comes back, I think it'll be interesting for him to talk a little bit about, you know, yes, he had sort of that, that group come after him as a result of what he showed, but how he can move forward and be more resilient as a result of it and how this is something that any individual organization or community can do as they move forward together. Yeah, Brett, it'd be very interesting to hear about that. And at the same time, can you address, Brett, the issue of, are we really talking here about data-driven lying at scale? Is that a good way to summarize it? That's part of it is the the data-driven lying, but I think it's really, um, it's about uh, making people feel uh, validated that their their worldview is real, and then uh, building this kind of cone of interaction uh, of self validating thoughts and ideas. Um, one of the key things that information warfare plays off of, uh, or disinformation, I don't think it's necessarily lies, but it's it's loneliness. So if you have a a narrative that you can offer or a sense of connection, you know that very toxic people spreading divisive stuff on on Reddit. A lot of lonely young men who feel disaffected. Um, so uh, that's that's part of it. Uh, now, in relation to the what do you do about getting attacked and how do you make, build more resilience? I think one of them is you you expect the attacks to happen and you plan for it. Uh, bad actors are laying all sorts of traps trying to get people to engage. Well, when Q came after us, we kind of expected that something like that might happen. We had no idea it would be that big, but it's hard to map these things by getting historical data from Twitter. It takes like an active legal and bureaucratic sorcerer to get historical data. But if you expect it when it's coming, you can capture so much data. So when Q attacked us, we had worked with all of our partners to know what are the keywords, the networks, et cetera, where they're gonna come at us. And it was kind of like on a rainy day, we just let the floodwaters come in into our reservoirs and we built this great glorious map of the conspiratorial web, both foreign and domestic. So we turned the attack by Q into uh, an asset and, and having that anti-fragile approach where you're not just resilient to attack, but when you're attacked, it makes you and your community allies stronger, I think is a really important part of good, um, good strategy and tactics in this space. And, and I think the key that what Brett just showed is it is about almost like jujitsu of sort, taking whatever energy is thrown your way and finding a way to then find benefit from it 
And, and he said a little bit earlier, uh, it's about making folks recognize that this is not something about, is it just the left that's having this happen or just the political right that's having this happen? It's really about all of us are experiencing this. The interesting thing that Brett has experienced, that I have experienced, that other others that are working in a space have experienced, there are some countries, more so in Europe or, or up in, 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 in other parts of North America, that are more progressive in recognizing that this is a whole society challenge. We here in the United States, for whatever reason, still seem stuck in, in, in different groups thinking that disinformation only affects them and they're not sort of reaching across and recognizing that there's actually disinformation being done on the other side too to try and throw, almost throw water on a grease fire to try and make it even worse. And so for societies that are still at that infancy stage of trying to address this challenge, I think the one thing I would ask from a people-centered internet perspective is it's about all of us and it's about all of us addressing this together and recognizing that it's not just one side or the other side, that all sides are being intentionally trying to be divided. And as Brett mentioned, it's about trying to then figure out from that how we can be more resilient and more resolving as we go forward in addressing these issues. But one of the things I would say as an, as an example of countries that are more forward-leaning, we've seen what's called the Latvian elves. And the Latvian elves were just developed to, to, to stand up against the trolls. Uh, and basically, this is, these are efforts that, that, that say, again, it's not about trying to get your community rallying in. You know, if you're feeling righteous indignation, that's probably a case of where someone has polarized you such through social media or the news that you've been presented that you're no longer thinking rationally about it and you're no longer open to having the different facts be considered in their full context. But that's what really the Latvian elves are trying to do in Latvia. We're seeing same things in Estonia and Finland. They obviously have to do that because of their neighbors uh, that they have to deal with that are larger that may be doing these sort of things to them. And so looking for more community-based solutions, that's really what we're trying to seek for here as we move forward. So David, what what's the solution? How do we address these issues? Or is that too large a problem? I don't think anything is ever too large a problem. I mean, that's the, that's what I like to do is sort of rush in and try and grapple, grapple with it, even if it's messy, complex. And I think Brett would agree, it starts with first just having conversations about this and greater awareness and getting different perspectives on the issues. A diversity and a plurality of perspectives will make us stronger. And then two, it's saying, what are the community-centric approaches that are collaborative? Because no one organization or no one group is going to solve this by themselves. I think the place that it gives me peace is that the solution starts with a mindset uh, of understanding that a lot of the goals of these efforts are to divide us, to make us afraid of one another. And once you realize that, um, it actually really feels great where folks in the early 2000s that I would have thought were like my political enemies, I'm like, actually, we can be allies because we have a shared threat and we have a shared opportunity. Um, and so we actually start this uh, in a strategic and tactical framework we've developed over three years. It starts with three very simple protocols, um, which is really a way of approaching the space whether you're a member of the public or a CEO or a skilled practitioner, and it's three things. Um, one is elevate the conversation, um, usually through increased self-awareness. If you wanna elevate the conversation, increase your own self-awareness of your organization, your own biases, how you're getting targeted, et cetera. Number two is find the common cause. Uh, finding the common cause is a great source of surprising dividends and power for the people who know how to do it because we're in a time of political and economic weirding. So there's new coalitions and new opportunities. The third is to listen for, discover, create, and share the most effective tactics available. Whatever you think works, whatever you think uh, your assumptions are, find the most effective tactics available. And that's meta. We call it the meta framework. Um, elevate the conversation, find the common cause, 
and look for and create those most effective tactics available. If you just keep coming back to that, um, it's actually, you know, day to day, you end up finding new allies, uh, mobilizing your team in a different way. Um, and you see it as, a, as an opportunity um, for discovery while you're also trying to find some really powerful weapons to take out some bad guys, if that's the case. What advice do you have for people in, let's just go down a list. Let's start people in corporations. Let me ask you both. So I think with corporations, it, it's recognizing that, that this is a very real issue. And as Brett mentioned, it's no one part of your organization that can solve it. It's not just the IT department. It's not just communications. It's not just marketing. It's really got to be elevated to the C-suite and the board. And the more that the C-suite and the board can have conversations about this is the new reality and this is occurring, and it's going to happen uh, when, whenever you're going to be doing something that might be an opportunity for people to just polarize and divide things either in a country or divide things in your marketplace, the advice would be is just elevate this at a board level conversation. Yeah, I couldn't agree with David more. Um, uh, I was talking to someone the other day and said, you know, I, I don't imagine myself as waterproof to influence. And a lot of these, um, these campaigns, they target getting inside the social media loops or the conversations and discussions of CTOs and CEOs just to change one little thought on, on, uh, on an issue. Um, but you have to be thinking of this as fundamentally as risk and something that uh, cuts across all of your business divisions um, and opportunities. So I would totally agree with that on a, the corporation side. All right, let's go on to journalists and media. How should they be dealing with disinformation? And David, let's hit you up first. So I think that's an interesting question because the challenge is, is how, do, how do they even know what they're pulling from social media or they're pulling from sources is the full context or, or not necessarily even being targeted? I mean, we, we, we just saw this week, um, unfortunately, there, there's a case where neo-Nazis are actually targeting specific journalists with doxing. And so that's a weaponization. And so I think for, 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 for the media, it really is just recognizing, be skeptical, um, but also wherever possible, uh, and it's, I think this is just a good practice, try to get all different perspectives and try to do something that's a nuanced article that is not inflammatory of your readers. Now, the challenge I think we face is, is that we're seeing print subscriptions decline and a lot of what's driving media now is the advertising-based model. And so the challenge is, is we know that, unfortunately, this gets to the other problem, which is we as people don't tend to read longer, nuanced articles or we don't read past the headline. So this may even mean that we need a new model of funding journalists and funneling media in a way that allows them to write the in-depth stories they need to write with necessarily having unconscious or subconscious biases to making things more polarizing and inflammatory. David, I know you spend a lot of time with uh, folks in the government. And so what advice do you have for, for leaders and department heads and business decision makers inside the government? In this case, elevate it to the highest levels of the executive branch and the legislative branch to recognize this is a challenge. It would also go further to say, public service by its nature is very visible and very open. You, 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 that if it's working well, it needs to be open. But the challenge is, is that then gives all these different opportunities for weaponization by those people who want to do things that are divisive, take things out of context, and create disinformation. And so for those leaders, it's, it's actually the same as with corporations, which is elevate this as a risk conversation. Also elevate this as a conversation that it shouldn't be a conversation where you're trying to point fingers or point blame. You're trying to actually encourage a always learning organization where, as Brett mentioned, 
the mid-level or the, the worker that sees something that's going on that's odd, has the ability to elevate it and say, I'm seeing something that's odd. It, it may be something, maybe we need to focus on it, maybe we need to address it. But more importantly, you're an always learning in a public sector mode. And then finally, engage the public in these conversations that this is a concern for all open societies, all open nations, because if not, again, we will become autocracies of thought and ultimately autocracies in reality too. And Brett, your thoughts on advice for both uh, folks working in the government, not necessarily elected officials, but people in, in the government, as well as for journalists and what they should be doing in relation to these issues. I think it starts with a common piece of advice for both, which is realizing you are in a domain of intelligence uh, agencies, influence operations, et cetera. For journalists, the rules of investigative reporting and trying to figure out what's going on are, are, are very different. Uh, and you're not, especially with where the state of news media is, you're just not going to have the resources you need. And so part of the approach that we've developed is um, we call it an asymmetric strategic and tactical framework because no matter how big you are, you're not going to have enough resources to fight back against uh, nation states or corrupt uh, international interests. So learning how to say, if you're a journalist, you know, even at the New York Times in a small uh, outfit, you need to figure out how to spin up the right uh, coalition of partners to help you out, how to make them aligned. And the, um, that Aikido approach of thinking, how can you use the energy that's already uh, in motion to your, to your favor? Um, that asymmetric approach is the only way you're really going to be able to, um, to address the problem. We've trained journalists to do this. We've worked with journalists in coalitions, uh, both here and abroad. Um, but you know, as a reporter, you're trying to build up, you know, you're spinning up a, a research project. So journalists are actually really good people to bring involved because every time they do a story, it's a different learning process. It's a different learning community. And the ones that stick around learn some good heuristics and, and tactics. Now for governments, um, uh, even though you're big, you've got to think in the same asymmetric terms. Um, if you're a big agency or a big, uh, you know, military, uh, you're, it's going to be hard to marshal enough uh, tactics and, and forces and, and resources all at once. Um, and you've got to you've got a partner um, and you've got to find those most effective tactics available because, you know, it's, it's cliche in business books, but the best ideas are probably not inside of your organization's walls. What are you going to do about getting those, vetting those and incorporating those as fast as possible? And then also partnering with people that can execute on them that aren't on your payroll. That's kind of the mandate of an accelerating um, uh, information warfare or disinformation environment. Finally, as we finish up, let me ask both of you for your concluding thoughts. We have just a couple of minutes left. And, and David, let me, let me turn it over to you. The one group we didn't talk about is all of us as, as members of the public and members of different communities. And, and, and really, the, the, the ask would be is, is the internet in some respects and, and this new medium that makes, I mean, we didn't even talk about it. It could easily be another show. The fact that, I mean, some of these things have been around since the 1890s. Uh, we had concerns about yellow journalism. Uh, there was the Remember the Maine incident, which may or may not have contributed to causing the Spanish-American War. But, but what's new with these new technologies involving the internet, artificial intelligence, automation, we, we, we have to recognize that we as humans have a responsibility to think before we either like to retweet or repost something, to, to add emotion to it, something online. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if it's something a cause you believe in, but 
think about what you're doing because you may be throwing gasoline on that fire or grease on that grease fire and making it even worse. And, and, and so at the end of the day, it comes upon all of us. And, and, and again, embodying that quote from President Lincoln, which said, I do not like that person, I must get to know them better. If, if there could be one appeal, it could be think about community-centered approaches that embrace the diversity of open society and the diversity of thought, and at the same time have empathy to those people that you may not initially agree with, but you can actually find some way to move forward and, and try to find a big enough tent wherever possible. Guardians AI, if people search in the web, you obviously won't find a big footprint, but uh, you will find some articles about them. If folks are interested in engaging with Guardians AI or engaging with the People-Centered Internet Coalition, uh, we do have a website, peoplecentered.net. Uh, we do welcome people to get involved with this community because at the end of the day, it really is about community-centered approaches to this. And what we may be discovering is we may have spent the last 20 to 30 years developing technologies, but we've missed the, the needed thing for the next decade, which is can we develop technologies that empower a diversity of community to work together and play together and, and live together uh, in a better way. And Brett, any final very, very fast uh, last thought from you before we end? Yeah, if the find the common cause uh, with people you wouldn't ordinarily think about working with. Um, diversity of thought as a way to learn faster and better is one of our, our greatest strengths. And these technologies that kind of get us in our own little filter bubble and these influence campaigns that try and um, uh, divide us further, if you can invert that um, and, and learn from a lot of different sources and, and partner, um, whether it's in business or to protect a community um, or a country, that's a great source of power. The, that's a driver of innovation and, uh, uh, and how I think the public fights back and, and wins to, def to defend open societies. All right, I think we are just about out of time. We've been speaking with Brett Horvath from Guardians.ai, and we've been talking with David Bray, who's the executive director of People-Centered Internet. Gentlemen, thank you so much, and I hope we'll come back and we'll do it again. Thanks for having us, Michael. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website and you'll get our newsletter and all kinds of great information about CXO Talk and our upcoming guests. Thanks so much, everybody, and I hope you have a great day and we will be back here next week. Take care. Bye-bye.